I want to employ all men and women of reason and critical thought to revisit the view of crime, criminality, violence. I'd like to challenge and encourage you to more objectively address the actual facts and reality of that is often phrased and framed in a narrative that is more conducive to tribalism, racism, prejudice, and discrimination. It is interesting that when you observe anyone looking at pictures of African-Americans with guns, they immediately, in their mind, in America, resort to a defensive posture that that particular individual is a criminal, has committed a crime. But with white people with guns, not so. They are simply defending against crime, protests of White students is seen more as a type of political statement, whereas protests by black students is seen as disrupting unlawful rioters, troublemakers. And you see this juxtaposition in the 60s, uh, whether you're looking at Berkeley or looking at Howard or looking at different regions of the country, rich white kids that went to Ivy League universities that were protesting the war as opposed to blacks in Harlem. The idea and the difference was one has a right to oppose the war on a political view, though they may have differed with it. But when a black man does it, well, that just strikes at the systemic psyche that is America's history. That's our history, whether we like it or not. It's just, just a history. Um, from the antebellum period, that period that most historians derive from the Constitution to uh, just the beginning of the Civil War, you're looking at a society where if you were dark, you were subjugated. But white crime is different. Did you know the men that protested the shutdown in Michigan all showed up with guns. They were not arrested, were they? No one arrested them. No one allowed them. Um, well, no one disavowed their rights to come inside a building. No one put up barriers. They sat there and let them scream in their faces. But it had it been a group of blacks with automatic weapons, rifles, guns they would have never been able to stand there. That is a fact. Years ago, you had what in Montana or Idaho, the BLM, I believe it was the land um, confrontation between the government and the people that weren't going to allow them. And that was a big standoff. And they came with their trucks, their guns, their sons, their fathers. And there was a major standoff, but that would not be allowed had those people been black. And it's a little different when you look at violence. Violence is looked at through a racial scope. 
of prejudice. And when you look at the issues that they had concerning interracial marriage, um, it's projection, actually. It was common for the white slave masters to take the black women who were even married or coupled, if you would, virtual marriage, common law marriage before they made it a license, right? But marriage would take them and have children with the black slaves' wives, their women. But in America, when a black man would take a white woman, well, that was considered the highest crime of all. It's okay for, basically in their view, it's okay for us to take and use your black women because uh, we see them as less than human, but you can't take ours. So it was a very, um, <laughs> I, I, you, you can rape the dog, but the dog can't rape you. I, it, it's, it's really uh, very disenfranchising. I cannot emphasize enough the importance for people of intellect, of critical thought, to look at the facts. Look at the facts and look at the issues of where violence really lies, its ugly head. I used to make a small joke and just in jest sometimes, you know, I walk up to an ATM here in California and a white lady's there and I'm walking up in my suit and it doesn't make any difference. She starts clutching her purse. <laughs> I'm a professional. It doesn't make any difference. So I'm dark. She's already pined to tribalism. And I remember one time I said to her, or a random woman, obviously, I said, oh, ma'am, don't worry. I just want your wallet. You got to watch out for those white boys. They want to take down your whole school, your whole city. They'll come in and shoot your whole church, shoot your whole city up. Oh, blacks, we're, we're real, really easy. We just want the wallet. <laughs> and she realized how, how ridiculous the situation was and what she had done, actually. And she smiled and laughed. And she goes, I'm sorry, you're right. <laughs> And we both had a good giggle over it, but it was a, it was a look into what we all experience as African Americans when we walk through life, regardless of our status. You can be even a black police officer, and civilian clothing, you get the same treatment. My friends that are in law enforcement will tell you that it makes no difference. Uh, the reality is, it's just the psyche of racism in America, particularly, particularly. And it's something we have to deal with. Uh, don't worry about the black guy. He's not going to drop an atom bomb on your city and destroy a whole region of people. No, uh, our, our white brothers will do that one. But we have this view, and anyone in criminal law and criminal sciences will tell you this as well, that it is it is really rather Neanderthalish. It's 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 the reptilian brain that does not think in logic or reason. You know, white women are not raped uh, by any major number of statistics by black men. No, not true. They're raped by white men. And equally in modern time, is that true for black women? Not doing slavery, but that's true for black, black women now. It's going to be black on black crime, but it's not just black on black crime. It's white on white crime. It's Hispanic on Hispanic crime. It's Muslim on Muslim crime, Sunnis and Shias. We're worrying about, you know, Islam calling the rest of us who are not 
Islamic infidels, but the major threat that they do is against themselves. And for all of the Jews that Hitler killed, he killed more Christians. Even though they had a racist policy towards Jews and definitely towards blacks, just as Mr. Hoffman. And the idea is to understand why do you have this view? It's systemic. In your culture, our culture, and our movies, and marketing, and advertising, and the antagonist, and films, it's in art. Theater, everywhere you look. So the brain has already been programmed and brainwashed to see that. You remember the the racist young man, the white supremacist, mentally ill young man, more than a white supremacist, who shot up the church in South Carolina because he had gone on site and read about black people taking white women, and they were taking over the world. Hence, in America, that great movement with Jim Crow, the Negro problem. He shot up those praying black people in a church and thought he was helping, but he went to the most defenseless, the most vulnerable, no one that could put up a fight to stop him. He didn't have the courage to go and face young black men. He went to some old black women praying in the church. It's evil what's going on with the violence in our country. The idea that black people, uh, as I I believe uh, uh, an article that was written on this subject, um, I think it was called The Biggest Lie in White Supremacist Propaganda, Unraveling the Truth About Black-on-White Crime. It was published June 14, 2018, in publication by um, Hate Watch staff. And it was a summary that they did on this subject. They wrote, the idea that Black people are wantonly attacking white people in some sort of quiet race war is an untruthful and damaging narrative with a very long history in America, as we know. And it's unsubstantiated. And as I said earlier, it started with, you're looking at Jim Crow. And they justified this view, slavery and lynching, mass incarceration, hence the various crime bills, the Klan violence. And Without the ability to claim oppression of black people as a form of self-defense, racial segregation and white supremacy would be seen for what they are, rank oppression of other people for financial or other benefit. But we know that. We know that. Just based on the cotton fields and tobacco fields of the South, from which I hail from, that propaganda was greatly circulated in American history. You know, out-of-control black violence continues to this day to motivate white supremacists and propagandists to recruit hate. It's easy to do, people. 
the, this narrative of black criminality is central to our history. It's the foundation of discrimination and inequity and injustice in our country. So we don't see where the crime really is. We're just pointing the finger at everybody else. Crime happens within each group. We are criminals against our own before we're ever criminals against someone that's not of us. Before Hitler went through Germany, I think he went through the Night of Knives, killing over 200 opposition Germans to his third right reign of Nazism with the SS and SD in Germany. It starts at home before it ever starts at your neighbor's house. You can guarantee that if someone is raping their neighbor's kids, they've already raped their own. If a man is beating a woman on the street or at his office or in a park, he's beating his wife or his daughters. It all starts there first, that violence, that slavery, that hatred. <sighs> Critical thought, please. Critical thought. With this abolishment of slavery, in 1865, white Americans had to adapt. They had to adapt to the idea of this new legal regime, reinforcing the racial, the racial hierarchy that they set on top, free or not, emancipated or not. As a white man, you still saw yourself. You are in charge. You might not have to call them a slave anymore, but they will never be us. It became known in the late 60s as the Negro problem, quote unquote. American scientists and other intellectuals created a new body of knowledge that they could use to justify white supremacy by scientifically, I love data. Where was Dr. Fauci when you needed him? Well, they had Dr. Hoffman in Germany. Well, that was a little later, 1910, 1911. But proving black inferiority, we have to prove this. We have to, we have to adjust the data. And from 1799 to 1851, it was men like Samuel George Morton, who was considered the originator of scientific racism. And he relied on anecdotal, <laughs> no kidding, observations and physical measurements. Morton built on a racial classification system first created by the Swedish, thank you, Sweden, botanist Carolus Linaus, which placed people in one of four groups, Americanus, Asiaticus, Africanus, and Europeanus. His original work, Americanus, were obstinate, merry free, regulated by customs, while Africanus were crafty, indolent, negligent, and governed by caprice. Rather than simply ascribing characteristics to each race, Morton added a physiological layer to this racial taxonomy by measuring cranial capacity. Can you believe this? Didn't measure the penis, I guess, but they did that later. Studies he conducted using his personal collection of skulls, which he reputedly had known as the world's largest collection. Using buckshot and peppercorns to measure the volume of skulls in his possession, Morton argued that Caucasians had the larger skulls and were therefore the most intelligent race. Wow. 
especially after Charles Darwin's theory of uh, natural selection gained widespread attention with this publication in 18. It's kind of amazing to me that most, it's, it's amazing to me that when you talk about the Bible or God's word or anything of that nature, you say, ah, a man wrote it. But everything that most of you predicate your prejudice, your hatred, your beliefs on, whatever, a man wrote it. But you have no problem when a man is writing something that is prejudicial or biased to your view that you hold. But if a man writes something that is not, well, then you can't say that a man, well, who wrote what you believe? A man. Natural Selection, 1859. Alabama physician Josiah Knott, 1804-1873, for instance, drew on patient observation on religious theory to argue that blacks and whites were, in fact, a different species. Let's get into the Dred Scott decision. We weren't even human. Craniometry. Craniometry, measuring the size, the lengths, the angles, the brain, skull. Eventually replaced by a different kind of proof of black inferiority. Crime statistics. God, you can, you know, they always say blacks are on welfare more than whites. They always say that. But blacks are the smallest population. I mean, Hispanics now outnumber the black population in America by anywhere from three to seven million, depending on what statistic you believe about immigration. But there are under 40 million blacks and there's more than 40 million Hispanics in America. And out of a nation of 340 to 360 million, majority of people here are white. Majority of people that are, are getting government assistance are white. So more whites are on welfare than blacks, but you play with the statistics and you say, well, more whites are getting welfare, but out of the general population, the percentage is lower of the major population, whereas you've got 37 million blacks and you're going to have a higher proportion of that percentage of blacks on welfare than the percentage of whites on welfare, although more whites by number are on or welfare. You can play with statistics and say what you want. But regardless, they are what they are. And there's a reason for it. And it, and you have to really unpack that and dive deep so that you're thinking critically. By the late teen, the late 1800s, new forms of statistical data for crime Nationwide, the FBI started doing it. Everyone was doing these crime statistics to justify political agenda, budgets, all kinds of arguments that they were doing to get elected, uh, to zone cities, to control them, to build, to develop. I mean, there's just a number of reasons why they do it. Just follow the money. But this was really the social engineering through science, through data, through propaganda, through prejudice, through bias, through dogma. So it was a matter of the black community learning how to adjust to this new life outside of slavery. And the numbers were showing that African-Americans committed a disproportionate number of crimes. Well, I, I, so again, look at the numbers, right? So more crime is committed by whites than blacks, and that's a fact. But if you look at the percentage of disproportionate, meaning out of blacks, how many more blacks are committing crimes out of their race and how many more whites are committing crimes? So you're going to have more blacks committing crimes of the percentage of their population than you would have whites of the percentage of their population. And that's how the numbers are played with. And then you have to look at the underlying 
systemic reasons. Why? Well, whites get oppressed. Whites have poverty like blacks, but you're going to have, again, disproportionately more blacks in poverty than you would have whites in poverty. Whites are beaten by cops, mistreated and given ill justice, particularly those whites who don't come from Ivy League aristocratic families who have money. But you're going to have a disproportionate amount of more blacks coming from those types of families than whites. So whites can experience the same kind of racism uh, based on uh, classism. Right. They can ex- they experience police brutality as well, but disproportionately. So so it looks like it's a black problem. But white cops have beat poor redneck kids or all kinds of kids in the bayou as well. So you've got to look at it intelligently, people. And judge it properly. In his book, The Condemnation of Blackness, historian Khalid Gibran Muhammad argues that racial data revolution created a permanent linkage between blackness and criminality. The myth that black people possess a unique proclivity for violence became the most enduring way of communicating black inferiority and justifying continuing discrimination. And now, Hitler's Germany, the influential German based born. Statistician Frederick L. Hoffman, who would go on to serve as president of the American Statistical Association in 1911, played a crucial role in embedding the narrative of black criminality when he published the first book linked study of racial crime statistics. Hoffman trained in the American South and thoroughly absorbed the deeply racist culture that surrounded him. Well, Germans thought that blacks were inferior already. His interest in statistics developed as he read literature on black disappearance. Well, who wrote that? I'm wondering. The idea that the black race through their own self-destructive behavior would eventually vanish. He hasn't studied African history very well, has he? The release of the 1890 census afforded him the opportunity to test his theory that black people's violent proclivities were contributing to a high rate of black mortality. Why don't we call uh, the high rate of black mortality a lack of black access to health care and livable wage? And forget that. What about the number one killer of most of us? Stress. The stress of racism. The census data he used in race traits and the tendencies of the American Negro came 25 years after the end of slavery. Enough time, Hoffman believed, that the conditions under which black people lived reflected only on black people themselves. I love that. No contributing environmental factors, Dr. Hoffman. None of the stress, none of the disrespect, none of the isolation by those that have the power to coalesce and herd them in two ghettos. Of course, black people at the turn of the century did not live under the same conditions as people who were white. After the Civil War, Southern states were able to perpetuate the racial hierarchy and coerce labor that existed under slave by making them central features, and they did, of their judicial system. As Douglas Blackman documents in Slavery by Another Name, statues criminalizing minor and subjective crimes allowed law enforcement to easily arrest black men without representation who were then leased to farmers and private industry as laborers. Well, I tell you what, you go and you work for this guy, and they did the same thing with the prisons, by the way. Financially to benefit the states. In other words, we're going to figure a way to circumvent this end of slave and forced labor. They don't have to pay you to be a mule. It's amazing. The county convicts working in the Pratt's Mines of Birmingham, Alabama in 1890. 
24 men were incarcerated for using obscene language. Some were incarcerated just for looking at a white woman. Another 24 for false pretense, a statue used to punish black men who changed employers before the end of the farming season. And seven for vagrancy, another ill-defined charge that left unemployed black persons vulnerable to arrest. In Alabama, the convict lease, leasing system remained on the books until 1928. This context mattered little to Dr. Hoffman, who took crime statistics at face value, insisting they showed without exception the criminality of the Negro exceeds that of other races of any numerical importance in this country. Well, obviously. Who was enslaved in this country for 400 years, having their wives and children raped and forced into labor to make nails? Environmental factors, including access to the most low-paying and dangerous jobs, segregation, exclusion from unions, discriminatory policing, and other social economic factors that might influence crime rates. Well, those were all brushed aside because he had, Dr. Hoffman, a prejudice himself. Crime rates received little notice, did he? Hoffman quoted an, an academic who praised the Italian-Irish immigrants for their ability to melt like sugar in a cup of tea. Well, when you're that pigment, you more easily can. And when they came to the United States, while criticizing black people for remaining distinctly African and their physical. Now you see why a lot of black people had the wigs like white women. They had to wear gloves, not show their black hands. They had to bleach their skin, dye their hair, straighten their hair to get rid of any African characteristics that were just an eyesore to white people to even look at. Like the other scientists of his day, Hoffman wrote, off higher crime rates among immigrant groups as a passing consequence of adjusting to the industrial city. In other words, it was temporary and environmental, an interpretation not afforded to African Americans. The power of Hoffman's interpretation lay in the fact that he argued with data and reason rather than passion and emotion, giving a scientific veneer to his racist ideas is how you frame the argument, folks. Someone can say, God bless you, they might as well have told you to go to hell. Listen to how they frame it. Relying on dry and seemingly objective government reports, rather than the usual racist tropes, helped obscure the fact that his narrative was credit crafted to discredit claims of black equality, Hoffman's innovative and enduring significance. Now, this was something that Muhammad, the author, argued, was not only in presenting the data for the first time, but also in setting the terms and shaping framing the analysis. By the turn of the century, famously, the Negro problem was a crime problem in America. Often it was supposed sexual threat that black men posed to white women elicited a violent response. Whites, especially in the South, cited rape and alleged need to protect white women. But folks, can I tell you something? You know who was getting raped in the South? Black women by white men. Yeah. 10 to 1. 10 to 1. Perpetrated against African Americans between Reconstruction and the Second World War. Alleged sexual violence also sparked outbreaks of mass violence against black communities, including the 1908 Springfield, Illinois race riot. 
Even the most well-to-do whites rationalize their own violence as necessary in order to defend their own racial purity and protect themselves against black, you ready? Barbarianism, or barbarism, excuse me. I always like the word barbarianism better than barbarism for some reason. At the turn of the century, a cohort of black academics and activist journalists pushed back against the accusations that black people were uniquely criminal and their culture hopelessly dysfunctional. If you're white and listening to this podcast, just remember, that's your history. Most prominent among them were the sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois, French for the wood, and investigative journalist I.D.B. Wells. In both of the works, the Philadelphia Negro, 1899, The Health and Physique of the Negro American, 1906, Du Bois, recontextualized statistical data to show that social and economic conditions were responsible for higher rates of black crime, disease, and morbidity. We do know that today, don't we? The widely accepted belief that lynching occurred in response to sexual violence committed by black men instead, show, she showed in her writing, Heidi Wells did. Lynching was a strategy for whites to maintain social control of black people through fear. Fear is the currency of control. Have you heard that one said lately? Look at your modern world with COVID-19. Contact tracing. Lockdown. Shut down. Shut in. Shut out. She also cast white men as the perpetrators of sexual violence. Well, that's true. If you know anything about the South, and I do. I grew up there. Describing the very real threat they posed to black women who had essentially no access to social legal recourse. Ask Eartha Kitt. Lena Horne. The public failed to take the 